Hi, this is Cam Smith, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. Hey, guys, why don't we eat? Dear don't cause a fuss, I'll have your spam. I love it. I'm having spam, spam, spam. Look at you doing that masterful turning it down. This fade out is beautiful. Matt, I'm feeling it. Oh, thank you. You feeling the love? We were just practicing our drumming Mm-mm. on the studio desk here. One day I'll be able to fill in. Get your paradiddles going. Yeah. I did, uh, I did once do a, uh, a drum thing in a studio. Did you really? How'd yeah. you go? Awesome. <laughs> With the, t- the Talby boys. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, just one of them. Uh, I was just—it was late. There is no no musician quite so confident as a white man on drums, is there? It's like, yeah, I'm good at this. I can do this. <laughs> I, I got the one. Um, how you doing? We're not quite at one yet. No, no. we're at midday because it is twelve oh three. Gee, that's a long intro we get. Yeah, we, yeah, we need yeah. to talk about that. We speed it up next time. <laughs> we might have to do that. Uh, welcome to the afternoon. Thank you, Shane. You, Thank you, Shane and Scientists. Wow, who, where did that masked man go? He's just vanished. He did. He it's did. a beautiful day here in Melbourne. We're trying to be up and... Maybe that's it. Trying to be up and upbeat and not mention the apocalypse. Shane's going water skiing. Is he? Just the most ridiculous thing I could think of. Or dressage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there we are. Good luck with the dressage work. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you for all your great information. Uh, thank you to the doctors. Yes. Uh, rah, 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 yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, um, and thank you, listeners, uh, those that have joined us. Uh, I hope you're going to get your, your drinks ready because we need your drink. Yeah, we bloody do. Sun's over the yard arm, folks. <laughs> Pour yourself something. Responsibly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> After the first three, you might not want to look at yourself. Are you referring to drinks or lockdowns? Yeah. Oh, hey, oh, uh, yeah. We're going to be uh, we're going to be joined by Sebastian Rayborn, yes, and Dervla McGowan, yes, um, the dynamic duo at Anther uh, that have uh, brought us gin and makes us happy. And what are they yeah. going to be talking about today? Well, the mastermind subject is the prohibition, the twenties, the nineteen twenties. Which uh, yeah, we and you said the, to me the cultural milieu. Yes, which um, you said, Dan, my, my pea-sized brain hadn't figured this out 100 years ago. Like, we were in the 20s again. Uh, so uh, Are we roaring? And, and you also said... Are we roaring yet? 100 years ago, there was a global pandemic. Indeed. So there's a few um, analogies that we can try and draw on, and we shall. Yeah, there's similarities that we can draw on from history. And um, uh, Prohibition was, as uh, uh, Herbert Hoover, the president, said, it was a great social experiment. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, uh, yes. Sorry, I nearly <laughs> let one fly there. <clears throat> uh, yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about the whole notion of prohibition and yes. the drinks that came out of it. And it's an excuse for us to drink once the noon has hit, really. And, and there's obviously there's a there's a broad irony that you ban something and it it leads to a sort of golden era of its consumption. Unintended consequences, yeah. like the rise of organised crime and the Kennedys. Yes, yeah. When we might talk about was that. there a comma in there? <laughs> I don't know. No, and because it was a, 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 yeah. a, a, what do you call that figure of speech? And a, the Oxford comma. No. no, the and, it's, yeah. it's a thing. Anyway, my, the neurons haven't worked because I haven't had enough martinis yet. Uh, we're also, one of the great things that you can do for mental health, for your nutrition, uh, and also to resist the greed of the corporate sector, mm. is planted tomato seed. Mm. Go into the garden, grow food, Yep, because you're liberating yourself. And um, there is something about gardening in the fact that when you are weeding, you don't think about your troubles. No. There is mindfulness in gardening. So we thought... Yes. Or who better to have a chat to uh, about that would be the the chief executive officer or the CEO of the Diggers Foundation. Yes. Um, uh, a foundation which I've admired for many, 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 many years. A long history with this show too. Damn, Very simpatico. Damn right. Um, there... Uh, they are things that they believe in align with ours. Hee hee. So Tim Sam Sam Solma will be talking to us about what we should be doing in the garden. What's that in your garden? Yeah. People used to say yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that no, question remember. every week. Yes. Uh, so we're gonna do that. Uh, before we do that, <coughs> we might have um, maybe a little bit of uh, what's, what's that, that in, in your mouth? mouth? My boy, what is that in your mouth? Um, where we look at our gustatorial delights that we've yeah. had over the week, Matt and I. Yeah. Uh, what we've been eating, what we've been doing. Uh, Matt, you want to go first? What's uh, what you've been uh, you know, imbibing that's, that's in? Question without notice, but um, I uh, and it, 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 for the not for the first time in lockdown, we almost have this weird little. Um, Ritual. Ritual now that, oh, lockdowns have been announced. What we best do is, is get on the is internet. It's called Burke, Burke Street Hill. Yes. And uh, just order some takeaway pickup from uh, Grossi because it's bloody delicious and it's easy and you can just forget about everything. And, you know, if you have the lasagna, you whack it in the if oven. If you have the lasagna, you'll be okay. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> and I think the nice lady at the at the cellar bar there sort of now expects us every first Saturday of every lockdown. <laughs> oh, here he is. Oh, uh, there they are. Here's your big heavy bag of food. Yeah, boom. But but I did say to you earlier, um, we ordered I think something like three main meals Mm -hmm. and some sides and some little bits and pieces, and it was about 130 bucks, which is pretty pretty good value for restaurant quality food for three meals. So for two people. Uh, in these times, which uh, we are avoiding mentioning for this yep. hour, because we're going to do better things than that, than yep. get all maudlin, uh, is the fact that if you can afford it, yes, if you have the ability, please support your local businesses. Yes. Um, I don't know how local you are to be, you know, Grossies. Um, that's not my they, local anymore. They do anymore. deliver too. You can, yeah, they uh, do. Yeah. Uh, but I would also say... Look up things like um, uh, Matt, Maddie McConnell from uh, Ballerinia's yeah, putting together a great stuff. pack. There's all sorts of great food out there. Uh, we were talking about Tulum and uh, doing yep. the great fish sandwiches that happened yeah. down at Carlisle Street. Look them up. Get into it um, is a great idea. I did make hot, wet rice you've the other been, day. You've been slaving over the rice. Slaving well, again, 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 uh. again. I say to you, this is maybe a theme of the show today. Mm. There's mindfulness yeah. in weeding and doing gardening. There is certainly mindfulness in stirring the risotto, especially after a couple of martinis. Um, <laughs> oh, what am I doing again? Um, <laughs> stirring a pot of risotto. And uh, yes, I made a beautiful, beautiful mushroom risotto. And Matt and I were talking about the fact that if you're going to do a mushroom risotto, must you have porcini in there as the backbone? We both looked at each other and went, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we think. So you get the dried porcini, which aren't cheap. You get a little bag for like five bucks from the market, but they are packed full of flavour. Actually, what you can do mm-hmm. is you go to somewhere like Mediterranean Wholesalers oh, and you get a big 
oh. mofo bag of it, and yeah. it'll cost you about fifty bucks. But that'll be you but, for the next two years. Correct, and it doesn't go bad. Yes. It's amazing. They're already dehydrated. I pulled some out of the the cupboard, which I'm sure I haven't used for at least a couple of years, yeah. and they were. Just they were fine. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you've got to uh, – so you get your dehydrated porcinis, you rehydrate them in some hot water. Just just, just a little bit. You don't need much. Hot boiling water, let it soak for at least 10 minutes or so. Yep. And then we were debating earlier, do you use the liquid from the porcini mushrooms or do you use the porcini mushrooms? And, again, we both said to the liquid. <laughs> yeah. Hell yes. Hell yeah. To the solids, eh, maybe not so Divided. much. I whack them in. I chop them up <clears throat> finely and put them in, but uh, – I had beautiful portobellas going with them, mm. and they were great. If you haven't made risotto before, well, gosh, you must be pretty much alone on your own desert island. But uh, one thing I would uh, be a strong proponent of, mm. which Matt and I have had a little <laughs> bit of contra-taunting over the years, yeah. uh, is a fresh stock is a must. DIY. Discuss, Matt. Stock. Yeah, so I've just been far too lazy over the course of my life, and so I just reach... Sometimes for the for, brick. Sometimes for the little for the tetra bricks. Other times, you know what? What? Just the stock powder. <gasps> I know, um, but uh, so but you were saying. Yeah, what was I saying? If you want to do your own stock, it's yeah. only about an hour's worth of work. What do you do? Very briefly. Uh, it's uh, briefly. You um uh you throw in uh if you're going to do a vegetable stock, mm. okay. You chop all your vegetables very, very finely. You bring it up to the boil very, very quickly. You skim off the impurities. That's probably the most important thing in making yep. stock. Bring to the boil quickly. Simmer, strain, stock is done. And then you can adjust it by boiling it down and concentrating the flavour. Mm-hmm. With meat stocks, uh, chicken you want to cook for about an hour. You can roast your bones beforehand. That'll give a different taste profile. Mm-hmm. I wanted a white stock, although I did leave the skins on on my onions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> which added a bit of flavour, um, and you bring to the boil quickly, skim. I had fresh thyme. I had bay leaf in there. I had uh, carrots and onions. No celery because I don't often have celery in the oh, in the fridge. It's yeah. just, uh, it's just mm-hmm. me. Hey, it's just me, man. No, no Bloody Marys for Cam. Hey, that's when I get them. <laughs> it's like we need celery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then strain and then beautiful. And uh, the most important thing, Mm. as well as the stock, which is the backbone, Mm. um, um, I would say to you, then you want to put on the beautiful makeup at the end, which is the, I'm going to murder Italian. You ready? Manticacciura. Yes. (laughs) And the Italians all go, ah, he's doing it again. What are you saying? I don't know. It's a romantic word for what it is, though, because that's where you stir in the the, The butter. The butter and parmesan at the end. Yes. And and parmesan. And you know what sort of butter I had in the freezer? What did you have? Truffle butter. (laughs) Yeah, baby. And then lots of pepper and... uh, So you've got your homemade chicken stock. You've got a good amount of onion in there. You've got porcini mushroom. And and lots of Swiss browns. Swiss brown mushrooms. You've got butter. You've got truffles. You've probably got some some Reggiano on the top. You've got... Grana. Grana. Oh, Grana Padana. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But you've got probably about five or six comfort ticks there. Oh, yeah. And then pepper on the top of that and lots of red wine to rub into my head. (laughs) And... Yes. One of the most important things is sharp salad. Yes. I'm a big acid. proponent. And then also another thing that the I think one of my favorite salads around at the moment. Good mignonette or something like a soft lettuce. Mm. Chopped up nashi pear or a or a ripe Ooh. um uh Williams pear mm. and toasted walnuts. Oh. And, and that's more of a lighter vinaigrette. Because yeah. you know what, you've got to keep it because otherwise it fights with the sweetness of the pear. But that's mm-hmm. that's beautiful. It's beautiful, yeah. Um, now, very, very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Oh gosh, time's flying. Okay, let's uh, get on to this. Someone gave you a little voucher <laughs> in one of the lockdowns. I got. I was lucky enough to get a voucher from work for a department store. I'm like, yeah, okay. What did you do to, to win this voucher? Well, it was just a you know, let's, just standing let's, around. Let's look went, after yeah. our staff during lockdown. Go and spend fifty bucks. Stedman, here you go. And I'm like, what do I do with a? I'm I'm lucky enough, Cam, yeah. to be able to look at a fifty dollar voucher and go, well, I don't need any underwear. I don't need this or that. And this this was for a large department store of um, sort of um, how do we put uh, the the positioning of this letter of the alphabet? Look, you won't, you won't find one on Collins Street. You know, it, it's, okay. it's it's kind of more your budget in, which is fine. Yeah. Anyway, so what do I do with fifty bucks? Yeah, uh, what a what an awesome problem to have. Ugg boots. Uh, and so Ugg boots. 
No, sorry. <laughs> After much uh, scolding of the website, I decided to join the club of the 2020 Miracle Appliance, which is... The Air Fryer! That is right. So, uh, I'm now the proud owner of a pretty cheap and ugly-looking air fryer, but... What colour? Black. No, it was... Black and plastic. Black and plastic. Uh, but then I, I was sort of got on... Album by ACTC. <laughs> got on the telephone to you and said, Cam... Yeah, what do I do with this? What do I do with an air fryer? No, what do I do with this? Um, and so, we thought we'd share a couple of little recipes. If you have decided to join the air fryer club... Uh, then listen on. If not, okay. you might just go, oh, God. Well, first More of all, bang on. Just go. how long – what is an air fryer? What is an air fryer? Go. Let's start with – well, it's a glorified convection oven. Yes, it's like a little – it is basically an It's oven. the little convection oven that could. Yeah. Maybe there's more volume that goes through. I haven't been able to check that out. It was invented by the Philips Electronics Company mm-hmm. uh, by Fred van der Vige. In what year? Uh, 2010. It was, 2010. Uh, it was uh, introduced as the first type of air fryer for family consumers. Um, and I would say isn't – well, first of all, the question is, is an air fryer valid? I would say if you, if you have a really, really good convection oven, mm-hmm. perhaps you don't need an air fryer. Yeah, I would agree. Because that's, it's doing the same thing. Uh, I came into the situation where I have a very challenging kitchen that I moved into <laughs> earlier in the year that had no stove. <clears throat> yeah, I know. It's crazy. But it's a long story and we haven't got time to go into that now. Um, but I bought this thing. Yeah. And it was um, – it, it's like a mini oven. It's like a uh, – it's like if if I'd left out the oven in the rain yeah. and it had shrunk. Shrunk, yeah. Right? Shrunken oven. So it's got a glass door that glass folds door down. Folds it's out. got racks yeah, in the racks, side. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Or, and that is – Awesome. Yeah, right. Excuse me, kids, but I didn't actually do it. So, so um, the shtick of the air fryer is it's very, very hot. It's limited volume inside, yes. so it can move that hot air around very quickly. And very it can, quickly. And it can rep- the reason it's called an air fryer is it can replicate, try and replicate deep frying something. Oh, okay, I thought you were going to say a Santa Ana wind or something like that. Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, yes, no, that, that's true. So its gig is crispiness. Yes. Um, but also on the other end of the scale, if you get the ones that are standalone, mm. they also work as a dehydrator as well. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't do any battered foods in it because mm. that would be really stupid. Uh, but you could do – what's it good for? It's great for crisping up skin, yep. pork belly, chicken wings. <clears throat> you did an amazing thing with chickpeas. Yeah, I just found – I thought, well, how do I test this thing? So I just bought a can of chickpeas. You can't up with this yourself. Uh, well, no, I searched for some recipes. It wasn't Gabriel Gatto told you in a recipe? No. no. Um, but anyway, canned chickpeas, yep. you whack them in for five minutes to dry them out a little bit, and you just, you, you just sort of um, stir them through with some oil and some spice of your choice and yep. fry them up for another sort of 15 minutes and these really yummy little crunchy nutty snacks. It's good. Mm. Um, are they valid? Let's see. Um, I would say, again, one of the things that you are destined to do is mm. to have this thing banished from the countertop because it's too big, <laughs> it's, and right? It's, and and it's, it's, they're all pretty ugly too. They're pretty ugly. Yeah. So it's going to live underneath the counter. So you've got to do that. It's going to go next to the bread maker probably. Yeah. Um, and we spoke about appliances a couple of weeks ago. It, it, might, it might nudge out the blender. Sorry, blender, but mm. maybe you're in the garage now. Really? Maybe. Okay, what about margarita time? Yeah, it's going to be tough. And daiquiris. It's going to be very tough. Yeah. I will have to talk to Seb about that. Which one would he get rid of? And Dervla. We'll see what they yeah. say uh, when they come on next. You are listening to 3 Triple RFM. We're going to get our hands dirty in the garden yeah. soon. Uh, because that's what we want to do. Because, hey, we're not going to be down and low in this hour. We're here to uplift you. And we're going to send you into the garden and weed after this. Independently yours. Triple R. 102.7. My name is Renny Redzepi, and you are listening to Eat It on 3 Triple R. Yeah! He plays good guitar, Renny Redzepi. <laughs> Who knew? Huh? Who knew? When he's not pulling out pin bones from a herring, <laughs> he's on a telecaster. And he's got a horn section. Mm-mm. He's not, a, not afraid to use it. Yeah. Uh, one person, don't know if we've got the luxury of a horn section while you work in the garden, but it'd be pretty good inspiration. Tim Sansom, the Chief Executive Officer of the Diggers Club, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Cam, and afternoon to the Triple R family. What a beautiful... And no, I don't have a horn section in the garden. That would be great. Well, that'd Sometimes be great. I'll have, I'll have the tunes going, but a live horn section, I'd love hey. that. 
All right, over to you guys. Bum, 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 bum. Whoa. Yeah, no, it could be Stabber was you uh, pulling out the milkweed and, uh, <coughs> and doing all that sort of stuff. First of all, for those that are born under a rock, uh, gosh, you're not getting a lot of light. You probably need a vitamin D supplement, but also uh, you probably need to have the Diggers Club Foundation explained to you. What is the Diggers Club? Uh, how long has it been going on for? And what properties are you currently responsible for? Oh, okay. There's a lot in that. Well, firstly, yeah. shout out to all the Diggers Club members that are listening. Right. And I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's plenty of them in the in Damn. the AAA fraternity. Oh yeah. Uh, so Diggers is well, Diggers is a, uh, an Australian gardening institution. Really been around for 42 years. Uh, was founded by Clive and Penny Bladen uh, back in 1978. Uh, and we've got about 80,000 members across the country. Um, and we're, well, what are we? We're, we're a combination of all sorts of things. We're, well, I think the, the, the central message is that we're a foundation. We're a not-for-profit garden charity. Yeah. Uh, so about 10 years ago, the, the Diggers Club and the, and the foundation uh, became an entity, uh, and the foundation owns the properties. So you mentioned before the properties that we run. We've got a couple of gardens uh, in and around Melbourne. We've got Helmswood down the Mornington Peninsula. Yep. We've got the Garden of Earth up in uh, up near Blackwood, Blackwood, in Blackwood yeah. and the Wombat Forest, and we've got an association with Cloud Hill, which is up in Alinda. That's, uh, that's a beautiful garden. Yeah, all three of them beautiful gardens. And unfortunately, yeah. right this week they're closed. But uh, yeah. we're not going to dwell on the negativity. We've no. got our own gardens to be in. Well, we've, 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 the thing is, and one of the reasons I thought we'd get you on is the fact that we're in that uh, that beautiful tween zone between uh, seasons and. We look forward to spring, both uh, physically and metaphorically, for a lot of other things. Uh, and uh, just wondering to get your advice as to the things that we should be thinking about getting into the garden to do, and possibly things to put in. Yes, well, it's, well, our our seed catalogue, our seed magazine, which goes out every year in the middle of winter, is would have gone out to our members a couple of weeks ago. So, this is the time of the year when you sort of hunker down and pour over the, the seed <laughs> catalogue and plan your season. Yeah, um, lots of biro the, on there and things circled yeah. going, ah, oh, I want that, the sun and the moon melon thing, for instance. Black-tailed mountain or you want your yeah. tomato crop. So. Yeah. so, yeah, this is the time of the year. And, and then you get days like today where the sun bursts through and, the, and you think, right, I've really got to get my skates on. Um, so this is the time of the year when we're planning our summer vegetable gardens. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's, this is the time of the year when you're looking at all your, your um, capsicums, your tomatoes, your corn, your eggplants, your, you know, and, and for us, um, I guess what, what we differentiate from what, what you would sort of find at the supermarket is that our focus is very much on heirloom produce. So this is where we, we put flavour, number one, mm-hmm. um, nutrition, you know, diversity, the sorts of things that you can grow in your backyard that you won't get at the supermarket. And this is the thing, Tim, if I can just cut across your bowels there and excuse me for doing that. This was one of the things that was such a great differentiation of what the ethos was behind there. I remember years and years and years ago, the type of tomato that would get a supermarket owner or a seller really, really excited was the fact that you could hold it above your head, drop it and it wouldn't burst. But that certainly wasn't everything. And then all of a sudden I, I got... The, a hold of the Diggers Club, which had all these things that went back, uh, varieties that went back centuries, varieties that had stories as to how they came about, and varieties that tasted, performed, and were just so much better than what we see with the limited varieties that we have under the fluorescent lights of the supermarkets. Well, it's, it's I mean, this, I guess our journey in this goes back to the 90s when uh, Clive and Penny went and spent some time with the Seed Saver Exchange in the US and yeah. then brought back from the US and then and then subsequently from across the globe a whole heap of, of varieties which, which were, I guess, not as commonplace in, in modern, in, certainly not in modern agriculture, but are really well suited to backyard culture. They're suited to backyard gardens. Yep. And this concept of an heirloom, you touched on it a second ago, is that it's from generation to generation. Yes. Uh, and, and they're handed down yes. and preserved. We are stewards in this process where we take, you know, what has been centuries of selection, which has been for flavour, have been for nutrition, has been for long harvest time, for, for all the things that are about the experience of food. 
uh, <laughs> and and we take that we take that on and then curate that for generations yeah. to come. So because this is, um, it's something that binds us all together as as human beings. You know the. Uh, the thing about coming together about food and, well, this is what this show's been all about for uh, so many years. But I remember, what was the story? There was a tomato called the Mortgage Lifter. Yeah. yeah that, and that was, was yeah. that the one with the, the, they were growing them on the bottom of this hill? Well, it was a guy, Radiator Charlie was his name. Radiator uh, Charlie. And, and, he, and he ran a, a uh, yeah, he ran a mechanic store at the bottom of a hill. Mm. But he, he'd, uh, in his family, and this is, a, this is in the US, this is not in Australia, but the, um, yeah. uh, the, you know, the stories are global. Uh, and he, his family had this enormous beefsteak tomato, which, uh, which had been grown in their family for generations. He grew them and then started selling the fruit off his sort of stall at the bottom of the hill, you know, where his mechanic shop was. And, People started to build a name, a reputation. He started to sell the seed. He started to sell the fruit, and enough to actually pay off his mortgage. So he called it mortgage lifter. Yeah. So these are the sorts of, you know, I guess they're social stories as much as anything, aren't they? Yeah, they are, um, and they're things they're that stories. bind us yeah. into humanity rather than a corporation, which is uh, kind of nice in twenty twenty one too. I think I would have to say. Well, and, if, and the point is that if we don't get involved in this. Uh, and it comes down to us home gardeners or small-scale farmers, you know, farmers market operators, these sorts of small, localised growers, then a lot of these varieties are lost forever. Yeah. And this is this is what is central to our foundation mission, is to preserve these, these varieties as well as garden traditions and the gardens themselves so that they are in perpetuity. They, you know, the, the foundation will go on, you know, beyond Clive and Penny's years, beyond my years, uh, and will be the repository to... to to, to save these, these varieties. Yeah. Um, because there's really, there's really no government funding for it either. This is a, this of course there isn't. Of course there's yeah. no government funded for something so hippie-ish that, you know, well, anyway. But, you know, it, it, here's a case in point, though. I've got this beautiful book uh, at home published by Tashin, uh, and it's a seed, illustrated seed catalogue from a French company. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. What's it called? Vilmorin will be the French company. That, it's, it's all lots of colour drawing. Oh, aren't they beautiful? Yeah. And, and they're all like posters. Yeah, yeah and there are, and most of them are all extinct because we've we've yeah. we've lost them. And this is we look at this and we see what we've lost, and yet here you guys are seeing what we can keep. Now, Tim, in the limited time that we have, give us your top five things to get into the garden right now. Okay, well, it's seed time now, and I'd be going for the things that are... So right now, because we're quite early in the season, mm-hmm. sow seed for things that you, you sow in... So you sow them in a little punnet or a little pot, get them germinated first and get yep. them going in a, in a controlled environment, maybe a little glass house or a windowsill or something like that. Yep. So that, and these things are... And I'm talking about... We're talking principally around the Melbourne, South Australia, sort of Southern Australia market. Gotcha. Um, uh, so I'd be growing tomatoes, I'd be getting them going, I'd be looking at capsicums, eggplants, Uh, and these are the things you can put into the garden but also sort of shout out to people who don't have a big garden is there are things like sprouts and microgreens that you can grow on your windowsill any time of year you know you can you can kind of scale it up or down to whatever you've got at home Um, so the season is saying yep it's time to get on with the with the summer fruiting crops uh, and so get them in get them in some punnets and get them going pretty soon and jump on our website and you'll see the whole whole range of what's seed to sow now for your region um, and when our stock shops are open again, you can come in and talk to our team about what's, what's best to, to sow for this time of the year. Um, we've also got, you know, you can get hold of seedlings and those sorts of things as well. Um, but I, I'd, I'd also say that uh, you've also got to start thinking about what comes after that. So think about your, your, what vegetable beds you've got and what area you've got. So, right, you're gonna, you get your tomatoes going now and you've got some area ready to go for them. And then in probably, you know, four to six weeks, you can start to think about the things that you direct sow, like the big seed things like corn and beans. Uh, and maybe cucumbers, um, things like pumpkins, and you can direct sow them into the ground, and then you get a whole lot of them coming together for summer. Mm, a whole lot of love bouncing out of the ground. Tim, thank you for Diggers Club. Please send my regards to uh, Clive and Penny. I haven't seen Clive for a while. Uh, I will do. And uh, don't forget, folks, the, the, um, the Diggers Club annual... Is it the annual you call it? The, the seed annual. The, the seed, seed annual. annual. Oh, my God. Yeah. Such great reading. And uh, uh, I would certainly – it's recommended by Edith. Are, we, are you with me there, Matt? Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for having a chat. We'll have to chat again soon. Love to. 
Thanks for the call. Thanks, mate. Melbourne's own Triple R. It is 12.37 here on 3 Triple R FM. Edith is the name of the show. I've got Matt across from me, which Hello. is a delight. Oh. And uh, zooming in from uh, Detroit, we have uh, Dervla McGowan and Sebastian Rayborn representing Anthro Gin and all things distilled and good. Go. There they go, and uh, and you're ready with uh, with the with the cocktails. And the great thing is that there are a few kids, so long as they're drinking responsibly and, and you know the right age and things that are playing along with us as well. And what are we talking about? Well, we thought the twenties, Cam. It's mm. a uh, what a moment in time for cocktails. Yeah. And, Celebration as well, and a well, great one long party. One, one long party through I, the 20s. I was going to murder uh, Armstrong and say one great, great leap for human humanity and humankind, <laughs> um, because when we look back at it, the 1920s was an astounding decade, was it not? Such a huge amount of social change and upheaval. Um, skirts got shorter, dresses got more beautiful and glitzier. Mm. Dancing really opened up. We had jazz, and then of course we had prohibition. Yeah, and, yeah, and, was, and perhaps yeah. and perhaps <laughs> ladies could say unladylike things, which was awesome. Yes, they had jobs. They yeah. could have jobs. They could smoke. They, they could drink. Family. They in America they could vote. That's right. That's when the vote yes. came in. and But then along came, as Herbert Hoover described it, as a great social experiment oh, and economic <laughs> experiment. <laughs> yeah, and it's that thing, you know, we, 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 we think about this a little bit. You know, a lot of you may not know that, you know, before distilling and being working at Anther, well, running Anther, yes. you know, Derv's background, you know, is micro, medical microbiology and has got a sort of PhD in that. So... You know, we, we looked at this whole last couple of years with a certain degree of um, knowledge, mm. would you say, Dave? Yeah, philosophical, because we knew I sort of had a good idea of what was happening in the background. I knew that scientists were working their butts off to get the vaccine up and to bring us out of this pandemic, and we're, we've got it, and we're putting it into people's arms now. So we're moving well through through this part of the, the process. And we, we looked at what happened after the last pandemic, you know, and we thought, should we open a distillery? Mm. And we looked back at the 20s and we were like, hell yeah, we should. (laughs) (laughs) And especially one where you don't actually have to, uh, shall we say, uh, put down what you have made, your babies. I mean, you can make your babies and sell them direct and get them out when it's talking about gin, yeah? Yes, indeed, yeah. And, and it, you know the twenties. You know it was the that it was the true golden age of gin and cocktails as well, Cam. You know, like before that, cocktails were brandy. You know, whiskey. Yes, you know, right. they were really sort of different space. And the twenties, and it was partly prohibition. Mm. So you had all these American bartenders. Their jobs became outlawed. You know, they went all around the whole planet. They went everywhere to Italy and London and Australia. Yes, you know, and yes. They brought with them this cocktail knowledge, but what they didn't bring with them was American whiskey because the distilleries had been shut down. Yeah. You know, so you see this incredible sort of resurgence of gin because it was available, you know, and it became. Yeah, that's right. So, and really can be tasty. Yeah. So, <laughs> if I, just to paraphrase, so what we're looking at, we saw a great diaspora of people going out from uh, the US. But one of the things that really struck me was the fact that the uh, Prohibition Act or the 18th Amendment, which lasted for 13 bloody years, um, but the funny thing was, was the rich were insulated from this because it wasn't actually an offence to drink alcohol, it became an offence to manufacture and sell alcohol and thereby a whole group of people who could afford to pay uh, the black market prices were insulated from the effects of it and actually got to enjoy the effects of much alcohol. And you know who else got to enjoy it, Cam? Whom? Chicago. Chicago. Chicago never went dry. 
Well, of course they not. They banned, had Al Capone they, making sure that the everything was running, wasn't it? They banned the federal G agents the from actually entering the city. They said, no, nah, you can't. Sorry, we don't recognize your authority here. Really? So the, the, mayor, the Lord Mayor of Chicago ran on a campaign and, you know, he was going for his fourth time. Big Bill Hickok, I think, and his campaign was, <laughs> we shall never go dry. Big and this was in, like, 28, you know, 1928. So, like, eight years of prohibition. He's still campaigning of, Chicago will never be dry. You know, so as much as... You know, we see it as this nationwide movement. There were definitely outliers. And Chicago, you know, that was all the booze coming out of the north. You know, I mean, most of the, uh, you know, European and English distilleries sold more booze into Canada during Prohibition than Canadians had any hope of ever drinking. You know, and that was all yeah. going straight down to Chicago. And interestingly, I have family members um, that were around in Prohibition in America and they had to flee to Canada because they did the dirty on some of the Italian mafia Whoa. and disappeared. <laughs> yeah, before they actually really disappeared, if you know what I mean. Yeah, they, yeah. Well, they were never heard of again when everyone were pretty sure they were just in hiding in Canada, changed names and identities and everything. And fled <laughs> over the border. Yeah, yep. They stole a bucket load of, of booze, sold it on, and then had to go, had to run. Run away. So for, for those of you listening in Canada, yes. <laughs> and if your, if your ancestors suddenly appear in the 20s, yeah. you're probably Dirk's cousins. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, of course, they were, they were McGowan's as well? No, they were Monaghan's. Oh, the uh, Monaghan's. My grandmother's side. Yeah. Fleeing so. from the uh, mm-hmm. from the from the mafia, uh, and that's and, right. And this is the thing, I guess. One thing, and we need to go. Oh, we still got lots of time. This is fun. Um, uh, the the unintended consequences was, of course, the great rise in organised crime. Um, they say that uh, you know behind every fortune is a great crime, and one of those people, of course, was Jack Kennedy. Uh, father of the President of the United States, who was a bootlegger, was he not? 100%. 100%. But he did did get a a Congress, sort of congressional endorsement um, from at the end of Prohibition to (laughs) to actually go and... But they gave him a million US dollars to go and buy booze to to, to kickstart the booze industry again. So that was Roosevelt saying, you know, you know, come on, come on, Jack. <laughs> you can hook us up. We know you got the good stuff. We, Look, and and we know you got those fast boats to get it across the waters. Yes. That's right. We're, we're, we're in need. Come on. Really? Hurry up. So set, yeah, a, yeah. set a faith to, uh, to fix things up at the end. He went legit real quick. <laughs> Far out. And he also, Cam, you'll love this. Yeah. Invented the word scotch. Oh, yes, this is right. You tell me. You're gone. Yes. Because, you know, prior to Prohibition, the Americans mostly drank Irish whiskey or American whiskey. That's what it was all about. They, yes. They weren't, you know, they weren't real keen on the United Kingdom. They'd had some issues with England. And so Scotland sort of got a little bit tarred with that brush. And when Prohibition hit, a lot of the Irish whiskey distilleries really cut back production and... Um, really? A lot of the, the Scottish distilleries didn't, and so when so are you Jack kidding? Kennedy, we're, we're we're putting on double the staff. You would, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, that's it. And but when Jack Kennedy rocked up and said, "I've got you know, I've got a million US dollars here from the Congress. You know, can you give me some whiskey?" He actually went to Ireland, and they couldn't fill the order. Yeah, and he, he it up with all of this this whiskey out of Scotland, blended Scotch, and he brought it back to America. And then it was like, "How the hell are we going to sell this?" So he lent heavily on all of his mates in Hollywood and MGM. And, and you see, you know, from the, during the 30s, every, you know, every movie, all, all of the sort of leading stars, you know, would, you know, if they were getting a drink or something, it would be, can I get a scotch and soda? Can I, can I get a scotch and oh. soda? And, and this word, scotch, you know, for scotch whiskey was, was really, you know, again, unintended consequences. Yeah. You know, we now, you know, we now have a word no. for whiskey out of Scotland. Devla, was it you that was saying that the martini glass was invented during the 1920s? Yeah, that was the Bauhaus movement, and they yeah. had that triangular martini glass. Yes, beautiful shape, and that that lovely sort of tension of the of the of the shape. You know, that sort of yeah, deco Bauhaus mm. sort of circles and triangles, and yeah. 
because before that it's a it's a champagne saucer and then yeah. very briefly a sort of a it looks like a you know like a trumpet bell you know so it's got that beautiful curve oh, and it then, comes out yeah rather than just goes straight up mm-hmm. so yeah. it was the and Bauhaus then, movement that simplified that that shape well that that's sort of between between deco and Bauhaus when it was becoming you know very you know form Fun. being function yeah, yeah. you know yeah. and and making an icon you know, like what are we going to be drinking out of next, Cam? I mean, okay, uh, <laughs> before we uh, look at that too, Davide Campari was making the first ready-to-drink uh, Campari and soda. Well, that, that came from the 30s. Yeah. I think it was, that, that beautiful yeah. little pyramid-shaped bottle, again, influenced by Bauhaus. Hey, what did the 20s ever give us? I've got a quick things and then we can go on to the booze. The Band-Aid was invented in during the 1920s because Earl Dixon's wife, a Johnson & Johnson employee, used to cut herself a lot working in the kitchen. So uh, he created the first adhesive bandage for small wounds in 1920. Uh, so that was good. Now she could easily dress a wound herself. The blender was invented. Hallelujah! Past the margaritas. Uh, the, More band-aids needed, perhaps. Yes, quite rightly. Uh, the electric automated traffic signal. Uh, quick frozen foods, thanks to Clarence Birdseye, the TV and the radio, the yep. water skis and the vacuum cleaner, the portable vacuum cleaner. But now wow. let's talk about the great drinks of Prohibition. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to come around to a couple of Derv's favourites, but I thought mm. I'd start with a, with a couple that I love. Yes. Um, one of my favourite cocktails of all time is a white lady it's, it's gin, you know, fresh lemon and orange liqueur just shaken. It's If you look at it, it's clearly a, a gin margarita. Yes. Uh, and the margarita comes out of that era as well. The we know well it maybe a little bit earlier, but, you know, it comes and that's when Americans fleeing dry America go down to Mexico and, you know, bring this cocktail culture down there. So the margarita comes out of this. Mm. Era, Didn't they say the just... same thing about the Bloody Mary, about people coming south of the border and... Possibly that was where it was because uh, a lot of Hollywood, a lot of Hollywood stars, the people with the money, were able to flee over the border and get loaded, man, and then come back. Yeah, and that was, I mean, you know, there was adverts for Cuba that just were paid for by the large liquor companies. And yes. basically the, they had posters up at the airports. And more organised crime. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, my God, yeah. Oh, my yeah, God, absolutely. yeah. Dervla, what's you your favourite from the year? Um, actually, can't. The Negroni. Yeah, I oh, know, no, but <laughs> my favourite gin cocktail is the Negroni. Yes, um, and it's a beautiful. Uh, you know, I, I think you enjoy this one, Cam, yourself. But there's a beautiful balance between citrus, <laughs> citrus and bitterness, which I love. I love the bitterness of the Campari and the orange through it, yeah. um, and it's just a glorious, yeah. glorious cocktail. Um, and was invented by Count. Camilla Negroni. Yeah. Camilla Negroni. Yeah. Italian well. Be, be, being a Thomas. tough guy. Yeah. Okay, this drink isn't strong enough. These Americanos <laughs> don't hurt me. I want something stronger, but with a better Italian accent. Um, the but French not. 75, a, a drink that you guys have embraced, yeah. uh, was invented during that. the 20s. It was. And yeah, so that's oh, just, you that's guys go. Look at, if you, yeah. you can't so see... If I can just stop, this is radio theatre of the mind. When I said the French 75, Sebastian's head went up and his eyes went to the top left, which means he was accessing memories. They were fond memories. You could see it. Uh, so the what is the French 75? Well, it's fresh citrus, usually lemon juice, Yep. gin, mm. a little bit of sugar, mm. and then... Champagne. 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 Lots of champagne. Yes. <laughs> and they spend a lot of in London, drinking that particular cocktail. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we had a lot of um, French champagne you, cocktails. You did, them. didn't you, yeah. when you, when you guys there? Now, uh, there is the notion that, of course, as my mum was very, very fond to say when she used to get a good drink in front of her, and it's something that I've taken on and apparently it's become <clears throat> part of my good self, is when you say, that's good hooch. Uh, and there was a lot of good hooch around, and maybe that was because Jack Kennedy was bringing it in fast boats over the border, but there was a lot of really deadly, deadly bad gin um, around. And a lot of these drinks were made 
to um, to cover them up. I'm going to give two that you might want to discuss. The first one is the bee's knees, which is a saying which was actually a drink. And then the other one, is, of course, is the gin ricky. The gin ricky was made entirely during the Prohibition, uh, a refreshing highball drink that dates back, oh, no, wrong, early 1900s, sorry, but came into its own when you had to disguise your hooch. Now, Cam, I'm yes. going to debunk a myth for Good. everyone. Just, will, will that, that make a certain sound when something gets debunked? Well, maybe. Go I on, it, do it. It's a clinking of glassware. But um, while there was a lot of terrible booze yeah. during Prohibition, yeah, and there were definitely some bartenders mixing it and blending it to try to hide the quality. Mm. The cocktails that came out of Prohibition were mostly made with high-quality, illegally imported booze. Because the rich was, were paying for it. That's right. That's Boom. who was drinking them. You know, I mean, okay, a great one. That's a, called a, a last word. It was created at a golf club. The bartender there never stopped working full-time during Prohibition. His pay slips moved from... Uh, bar manager to to greenskeeper. Uh, he used to make Sorry. cocktails for the, you know, for the Vanderbilts right through that sort of period. The Stinger became famous there again, shaken by the Vanderbilts, made with you know cognac and and creme de menthe, and that was you know there was absolutely nothing you know dodgy about the ingredients in that drink because you know he he let you know pretty quick, you know. And the other one is the Southside, an amazing cocktail. You know, probably came out in New York, and again, it's side, just gin, gin, lime, and mint. But yeah. there's no way that was poor quality bootleg hooch. It was good booze. Another one that you love, Cam, the Rusty Nail. Drambuie sold more Drambuie yeah. during Prohibition than they'd sold in like the two decades before. They they were incredibly aggressive at yes. selling booze. They got really good at dropping it offshore outside of New York, and they have people you know, come out in boats and pick up floating deliveries of Cambui. They were, wow. you know, extremely proactive Imagine in innovative it. delivery methods. Imagine about e-commerce. barrel you know? of uh, Trambui. <laughs> That'd be kind of good. Um, case in point, Harvard, um, a place known for fairly wealthy clientele, had 19 years' supply of booze uh, <laughs> in, their, in their subterranean bar that they had. 19 years' worth. They were fine. Now I've got another one for you, Cam. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is just a little discovery of mine about prohibition and about the Roaring Twenties and about this, this sort of centre of um, sophistication yes. that is Tasmania. And uh, 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 during the Twenties, we think it was 1922. Yes, the first blue cocktails in Australia are served in Hobart in Tasmania. And for whatever reason, the bar they were served at has not been recorded in newspaper articles. But the fact that blue cocktails had arrived from Paris to Hobart in 1922 and were written about extensively. So, you know, these would have been um, served up in in a martini glass. They would have probably been, you know, it might have been gin, whiskey. We're not really sure. Probably with a little bit of citrus served blue. Yeah. And they came out of... Um, they came out of um, they came out of Paris at a, at a bar called Henry's Bar in Paris. Yes, and it was Charlie who was one of the famous bartenders in Paris at the time. We don't I haven't been able to find who Charlie was, other than he was the first one to be famous for serving blue drinks, and they make their way incredibly quickly to Hobart, and from there the rest of Australia. So not only did the twenties give us vacuum cleaners they gave us blue cocktails blue cocktails in the form of curacao yeah blue curacao i mean uh bowls liqueur company they maintained that they created blue curacao way back in the 1800s mm. but it has been fairly accurately discovered that the cock the, the list of liqueurs that they had for sale were somewhat aspirational they were in a competition uh, with another yes. liqueur company to have yeah. the most number of flavors, and they found out that maybe twenty percent of the flavors they published as available never existed, 
And we think blue cocktail is probably in that mix because blue cocktails don't, don't, it's not like no one uses blue curacao for another 50 years. So yeah. it was like, with it real, you know, if, if blue curacao exists in Holland, but no one sees it drink, yes. is it really there? Is it really? It's like the tree that falls in the forest. I, I seem to remember a thing called a flaming Lamborghini and I'm still trying to remember if I remember those or not or whether that's just a figment of my imagination. We have two minutes left. Um, again, if uh, we just reiterate again, Dervil McGowan, your favourite cocktail from the uh, the Prohibition time again? Mine? Yes. Um, I Actually, I would like to talk about Champagne Towers because I think that that's the funnest thing that happened in yeah. the 20s. <laughs> We will give you – you have 30 seconds. Tell so oh, the, the thing I love about them and, that you know, they were they were right throughout hotels and, um, you know, in all those speakeasies throughout, uh, you know, Prohibition. Um, but the thing I love most about them is you start – you build it and you start pouring it. Yeah. And it goes through – and if, it, if, it, if it's a success and everything works out really well, that's amazing. Woo-hoo. But if it absolutely falls to pieces yes. and – everywhere. That is also amazing. So catastrophe and a win, they're both a win. And and also one of the most glorious things, if you talk about conspicuous consumption, a champagne tower has got to be it, eh? Seb? Just love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Champagne is our 20s spirit animal, I think, for uh, the 2020s. That's our goal. Mm. Well, it was an amazing era, and and the fact is, and the reason we wanted to say it today was that it uh, it came after a terrible time in our history. The one of the, the greatest industrial wars we've seen up to that time, World War One, and of course a three year pandemic, um, which Dervler is a microbiologist, you know about. Yeah. Damn right. Yeah, and it- yeah, and it's it's we're well and down the shoot of getting through it and getting it done. We are indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. Folks, I hope you enjoyed that drinking along. Matt. Cameron. You rock. You do. Oh, my God, you do. Still here or on next. And, yes. And uh, we're going to get out just in time for yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again for joining us. See you later, you wonderful people. Love you all. See you next week. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Cam Smith, and you've been listening to the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. 